There are, uh, by, I went online and found this out because I didn't know the number, there are 195 countries in our world today, 195 of them. And according to Matt Carter and Josh Redberg and their commentary on the Gospel of John, 111 of those countries either restrict or are hostile to Christianity. 111. Just in the top 50, 50 of those countries, Christianity Today reported a couple years ago that, and I quote, every day 13 Christians are killed because of their faith, 12 church buildings are attacked every day, and 12 Christians are unjustly imprisoned, and another five are abducted each day. In North Korea alone, 50 to 70,000 Christians are being held in detention camps. It's hard to look at a passage like what we're going to look at this morning without thinking of such brothers and sisters. As for you and I, most of us have experienced the unique blessing of living relatively free of the kind of persecution that some Christians endure in the normal course of their lives. But with each passing day, as you know, I do not need to tell you that our society is becoming ever more hostile to Christ. And with that hostility against him comes increasing antagonism against us who bear the name of Jesus. Some in our church body here at Cornerstone have already found themselves in difficult situations in their place of employment because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. Some of you have felt the hatred of people against the Savior that you stand for. Most of us in this room have experienced particular moments when we were despised or mistreated or mocked because of our faith in Jesus. In fact, if that's ever been your experience in any given moment, just raise your hand. Okay. How do we respond in such moments? What should our mindset be? In our passage today, Jesus is going to help us with this. As for where we are in John's gospel, let's remember that Jesus is about 12 hours away from being nailed to a cross. Judas has gone off to betray him and is on his way with a group of men to arrest Jesus. Yet in the moments before his arrest, we have been seeing that Jesus has been speaking to his disciples about their need to abide in him. He has reminded them of his love for them, and he's called upon them to be abiding in his love. He's also called upon them, as we saw two weeks ago, to love one another in the way that he has loved them. Well, we come to verse 18 this morning of John chapter 15, where we begin to understand why it is so essential 
that these disciples be established in the love of Jesus and why it's so essential that they be loving one another. And that is because the world in which they find themselves will hate them. In fact, this passage that we're going to be looking at today is full of hate. In the English text of this passage in the New American Standard and probably in your translation, we see the word hate eight times as Jesus prepares his disciples to be faithful witnesses for him in a world that hates them. In fact, the way we're going to break down our study of the passage this morning is we'll observe five declarations of Jesus, five declarations that he makes or utters to prepare his disciples to be faithful witnesses in a hostile world. And the first of these declarations, let's word it this way, he tells his disciples, the world will hate you on account of me. The world will hate you on account of me. Observe what Jesus says in verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. The word translated hates here is a broad word that could mean to detest someone with loathing Or it could simply mean to treat someone with passive indifference as if they don't mean anything or they are of no account. And Jesus is seeking to prepare his disciples for anything within this full range of hatred, saying, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus' counsel here is designed to serve as both a warning and as an encouragement to his disciples. In the first place, he's warning them not to expect everyone in the world to fall at their feet and love their message. And the reason that they won't love their message is because they hate the person who is at the center of their message, and that is Jesus The disciples are going to discover in the next 24 hours that the world hates Jesus so much that it will arrest him and beat him and mock him and whip him and then crucify him for crimes that he did not commit. And Jesus is warning his disciples here to expect nothing less than hatred from the same world that hated him first. But in telling them what he says here, Jesus is also encouraging his disciples with the fact that they're not alone in being hated by the world. When the disciples find themselves in the days to come being hated by the world, they should be encouraged in the thought that they are in good company for the world hated Jesus first. And Jesus is also encouraging them not to take the world's hatred personally. They are in a war against the world and they are on Jesus' side in that war. So when the world takes its shots at them, they should not take it personally and get their feelings hurt. 
As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, when a soldier in an army is being shot at by the enemy, he doesn't get his feelings hurt or take that gunfire personally. He doesn't stick his head out of the foxhole and say to his enemies, why don't you like me? No, he knows he's being shot at because of the cause that he represents, right? And we should have the same mentality as people who now belong to Jesus, whom the world hates. They hate him and they hate his cause. Jesus continues his thought in verse 19, where he says to his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Ultimately, Jesus is saying a couple things here that serve to explain why the world will hate his disciples in the days to come. First, the world will hate them because they're not of the world, meaning that they do not march to the drumbeat of this world system, but according to the drumbeat of Jesus, and the world will hate that. Secondly, the world will hate them because he, look at the text, chose them out of the world. In other words, he chose to take them out of the world system and he pulled them over into his side in his conflict with the world. Keep in mind that Jesus is the sworn enemy of this world system. And he came to make war against the spirit of the world. His goal is ultimately to bring an end to the system of this world that is governed by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life and to replace that system with a system under his rule and governed by his love. And part of how he wages this war against the world is by saving some out of the world and bringing them over to his side in his conflict against the world and then using them as his ambassadors to represent his cause. And you just need to know, guys, that if Jesus has saved you, he's done that in your life. And the world recognizes this fact about those that Jesus wins over to himself and they react accordingly. As D.A. Carson puts it, and I quote, the world is a society of rebels and therefore finds it hard to tolerate those who are in joyful allegiance to the king that they are rebelling against. This actually brings us to the second Declaration of Jesus to prepare his disciples to be faithful witnesses in a hostile world. Number two, essentially what Jesus is going to declare here is, you could fill in the blank, people's response to you, speaking to his disciples, will manifest their response to me and to my father. People's response to you will manifest their response to me and to my father is essentially what Jesus is saying. Observe what he says in verse 20. 
Remember the word that I said to you. And what he's about to say, he said to them back in John 13, 16. And here it is. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus is warning his disciples here uh, not to think that they will somehow be above what Jesus was subjected to. If they are slaves of Jesus who are owned and operated by Jesus and carrying out his mission, then they should expect that they will get the same response from the world that Jesus received. They should not think that somehow they're going to figure out a way to be more popular with the world than Jesus was able to figure out. And if somehow they were to succeed in finding a way to be more popular with the world than Jesus was, then they should conclude that they're not being good slaves of Jesus. Jesus identifies two responses that his faithful slaves might receive from the world. First, he says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus, as you will recall, was not very long into his public ministry before he began experiencing persecution from the world of his day. You can write down this reference, John chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, because in those verses in John 5, 16 through 18, we're told that Jesus' enemies were persecuting him and seeking to kill him because he had healed a man on the Sabbath and was claiming to be equal with God. From that day forward, they hounded him and they opposed him every step of the way trying to have him arrested so that they could destroy him. And Jesus is saying to his disciples here, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. But then he says, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. It's possible here that Jesus is speaking ironically, as some commentators suggest, essentially saying, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also, but they didn't keep my word, so they're not going to keep yours either. That may be the case, but I think Jesus is also encouraging his disciples here with the promise that there will, in fact, be some. There will be some hearers who respond positively to their message about Christ. And Jesus is telling them here that those who do keep the word of his disciples are thereby keeping his word because his word and the disciples' word are one and the same. And Jesus would want you and I to know the same thing. Whether people's response to our ministry ends up being positive or negative, Jesus wants us to know that people's response to our word as we testify of Christ will ultimately manifest how they're responding to Jesus himself. As for those who will persecute his disciples, look what Jesus says in verse 21. 
He says, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. The phrase, all these things they will do to you, is referring to the persecution that their enemies will be coming against them with. And Jesus wants them to know that the world will engage in this persecution against them for my name's sake, is how he says it. In other words, their persecution will come against them because they bear the name of Jesus and represent his agenda. In the gospel accounts and in the book of Acts, we often see the religious leaders persecuting Jesus and his disciples. We see craftsmen and merchants, businessmen, having Paul and Silas thrown into prison because their ministry represented a threat to their bottom line. Nowadays, there are people who view Christianity as a threat to people's sexual freedom. So they hate Christ and Christianity for that reason. Whoever it is and whatever the people of the world may do against Christians, they will do these things because of the name of Jesus that we bear and the agenda that Jesus represents. And in verse 21, Jesus also says that they will persecute his disciples, look at the text, because they do not know the one who sent me, Jesus says. Such people will claim to know God the Father. But Jesus is saying here that they will not know God at all. And their lack of true knowledge of the Father, their lack of true relationship with God the Father will be exposed by the fact that they're going to persecute Jesus' disciples. Their persecution of Jesus' disciples will reveal this about themselves, that they don't know God. So ultimately, Jesus is saying two things in verse 21. First, he's saying that the world will persecute his disciples for his name's sake. In other words, it's really him that the world has an issue with. So they will persecute his disciples as an expression of their hatred of Jesus and everything he stands for. And here in verse 21, Jesus is also making it clear that the world's beef with Jesus is because they don't know the Father who sent Jesus on this mission, which means that their beef with Jesus is ultimately a beef with the Father, which means that the Father takes the world's persecution of Jesus' disciples just as personally as Jesus does. And guys, this is why we do not, or at least should not, get caught up in taking personal offense when the world persecutes us. Because Jesus and the Father are the ones who are taking the world's persecution of us personally. And they can handle our persecutors quite capably much better than we can, either with grace as they did Saul of Tarsus or with judgment 
and we can leave that to him. Now, up to this point of our passage this morning, Jesus' whole focus has been on the world's treatment of his disciples and how they're going to be persecuting and hating them. And you might read what he has said thus far and almost get the sense that the world is on the offensive against Christians, as if we Christians came along and we're just trying to mind our own business, but the big bad world just won't leave us alone. But this is actually not the way it is. The truth is that Jesus started this fight with the world. And we who are his disciples are a part of that fight in each new generation. And this brings us to the third declaration of Jesus to prepare his disciples to be faithful witnesses in a hostile world. Number three, let's word it this way. Jesus is saying, essentially, because of me, the world is without excuse for its sin. Because of me, the world is without excuse for its sin. Observe what Jesus says in verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. To appreciate what Jesus is saying here, we should remember that the generation that experienced Jesus' ministry was blessed with the greatest gift that has ever been visited upon any generation in human history. That generation experienced a visitation from God in the person of Jesus Christ. God himself came down from heaven to earth and lived among them. And then he opened his mouth and he spoke words of truth about himself and about God the Father to them, telling them the truth about themselves and about their sin and about their need for salvation, and about how he had come to provide for them this amazing salvation. And with this unbelievable blessing came a very heavy responsibility upon this generation of Jesus' day. So when Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. He's not saying here that they would not have any sin on their account if he had not come. What he is saying here is that their sin would not have become quite so apparent as sin if he had not come and said the things that he had said to them. On top of that, he's talking about a particular sin here, and that is the world's sin of rejecting him in the face of his revelation of himself to the world. So because Jesus has come to the world and spoken words of truth to the people of his generation, and they have rejected him, they now have the most serious sin of all on their account, and that is the sin of rejecting Christ and spurning his words. And their sin of rejecting Christ reveals that at the core of all of their prior sin 
was a rejection of Jesus and everything that he stood for. Look at the text of verse 22 about the world of his generation. Jesus says, but now they have no excuse for their sin. The word that is translated excuse here is the word that means pretext. A pretext is a reason given in justification for an action that is not the real reason. About three years ago, I was walking into a Target store in Moreno Valley and saw three people running out of the store with a big screen television laughing while some of the employees were watching them as they fled. They got in their car and they drove off. Let's imagine for a moment that those thieves got caught. And upon getting caught, they said, we're just stealing this television so that we can sell it and be able to feed our families. Their explanation for their crime would be a pretext designed to minimize their crime or excuse it altogether. And this is the way it is with the world as well. Before Jesus came, the world might have tried to use various pretexts or excuses for its sin. They might have said that their sins were honest mistakes based on ignorance or misunderstanding or they might have even framed their sinful actions as good and noble. But Jesus coming eliminates any such pretext. Now that he has come, and now that he has spoken words of truth to the world, and they have hated him and killed him, they thereby reveal that a deep-seated hatred of Christ is inside the DNA of all of their sin, which actually emerges from an even more fundamental defect in them, which Jesus identifies in verse 23. In verse 23, he says, he who hates me hates my father also. The problem is that the people of the world hated the father even before Jesus arrived and their hatred of Jesus merely exposed their hatred of the Father that had been in their hearts all along. Now, as far as hatred goes, remember that this hatred could speak of an outright loathing of the Father, or it could be a passive indifference to the Father as someone who is of no account. I'll just live as if he doesn't exist. That is hate. As much as loathing the father would be. Either way, how one responds against Jesus reveals their disposition against the father. As the commentator Linsky says, it is impossible to hate Jesus alone. If you hate Jesus, then you hate the father too. Case closed. That's Jesus' point here. Jesus circles back and says something very similar about the world again in verse 24, only he adds here a couple additional thoughts. 
He says in verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. In verse 22, Jesus focused on his coming and his words. But here he puts the spotlight on the works that he had done among them, works that no one else had ever done. And the works he is talking about are things like giving sight to a man who was born blind and making a man able to walk who had been lame for 38 years. He's talking about things like raising Lazarus from the dead after he had been in the tomb dead for four days. He's talking about feeding 5,000 people from five loaves of barley bread and two small fish. He's talking about healing a nobleman's son from a distance of miles away with just a word. And Jesus did many more miracles than these. So many that John says that the world could not contain the books that could be written of all the things that Jesus did. Yet how did the people of Jesus' day respond to all of these deeds that Jesus had done. Jesus says they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. So their problem was not that Jesus failed to provide them a sufficiently clear view of himself or of his father. Their problem was that they saw him and the father through him very clearly And they hated him and they hated his father. This is Jesus at the end of his earthly ministry. And he's not saying, man, if I could have just provided a little bit more evidence, if I could have just done maybe one more miracle, perhaps they might have become convinced of the truth about me and loved me. No, Jesus has done everything that the father wanted him to do. He presented himself clearly enough and the world has rejected him because they hated him. And in hating him, they revealed that they hated the father also. And they did something else in their hatred of Jesus. They fulfilled scripture. Notice what Jesus says in verse 25. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. They hated me without a cause. Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 35, 19 and Psalm 68, 5, where David speaks of those who hated him without any justifiable cause and engaged in treacherous actions against him. And Jesus is saying here that the unjustifiable hatred that David experienced centuries prior has now been his own experience as the greater David during his public ministry. Jesus never did anything to deserve anyone's hatred, but his enemies hated him because 
their hearts were evil and because they loved the darkness more than they loved Jesus. And I could say the same thing to you today if you hate Jesus with either a passionate loathing or a passive indifference. If you are a hater of Jesus, I know one thing for sure. You hate him without a justifiable cause. And you are without excuse. It is in your eternally best interest that you repent of your sin, of hating Jesus, and that you ask him to look upon you with mercy and to save you from your sin while he is right now still in the business of saving sinners. As the psalmist says in Psalm 2, pay homage to the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled and blessed are all who take refuge in him. So far this morning, we have covered some pretty rough ground in just verses 18 through 25. In fact, most of what Jesus has said thus far would be pretty jarring news for his disciples and might have left them feeling anxious, knowing that they're going to be experiencing persecution and hatred from the world with a hatred that stems from their hatred of Jesus and the Father. But having talked about all that, Jesus now wants to give his disciples some good news. In fact, the good news that he plans on giving them a very special resource to help them minister faithfully in such a hostile climate. And this brings us to the fourth declaration of Jesus to prepare his disciples to be faithful witnesses in a hostile world. Let's word it this way. He says, the helper I send you will testify about me, and so will you. The helper I send you will testify about me, and so will you. Observe Jesus' words in verse 26, where he says, When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. The disciples are going to need help in giving faithful witness before a hostile world in the days to come. And Jesus is going to see to it that they have all the help that they need in the form of the helper. The Greek word translated helper here speaks of someone who comes alongside of a person to get under their burden and to provide them with the help and the support with the aid that they need. And we need help, right? And Jesus gives us the helper. Jesus has earlier said that he will ask the father to send his dis disciples the spirit. Yet here, if you look at the text, he describes this spirit as someone whom I will send to you from the father meaning that the Spirit of God is as much a gift to us from Jesus as he is a gift from the Father. The Spirit is a gift from both of them. 
Yet fundamentally, Jesus describes the spirit as one, look at the text, who proceeds, present tense, who continually proceeds from the Father, who issues forth from the Father, meaning that everything that the spirit is and everything that the spirit does issues forth from the Father. And Jesus calls this spirit the spirit of truth, meaning that he can always be trusted to speak only truth and look at his topic. About this spirit of truth, Jesus says he will testify of me. He's going to talk and testify about me. Who will the spirit testify to? Well, for starters, he will testify to the disciples and to us who know Jesus teaching us the truth about Jesus and giving us understanding of his words. But the spirit will go beyond this and also testify to the truth about Jesus to the world. And he'll do this testifying through us and together with us. Which is why Jesus says in verse 27, and you speaking to his disciples you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus here is communicating his full expectation that his disciples will join the spirit and testifying about him to the world. Being emboldened in their testifying by the knowledge that their testimony will be empowered by the spirit and echoed by the Spirit as they testify. I encourage you guys to just let this wonderful truth sink in and let it embolden you as you witness to others and speak the truth about Christ to others. If you are testifying to others the truth about Jesus, you can know that the Spirit at the same time that you are speaking is speaking to the conscience of those that you are speaking to and echoing the same message so that the people you are talking to are actually hearing the gospel in stereo. The people listening to you may believe or they may reject your message, but Jesus is assuring you here that any faithful proclamation of Christ that you do is accompanied by the testimony of the Holy Spirit, which means that you are never alone, ever, in testifying of Christ to others. You always have a powerful partner who testifies through you and together with you. And that partner is God, the Holy Spirit. Is that encouraging? I remember years ago witnessing to a coworker who, as I was sharing the truth of Christ with this coworker, he was scoffing and laughing off everything that I was saying to him. And it was evident he wasn't letting anything in. So that night, at the suggestion of my dad, I prayed for him before I went to sleep. 
And every time I woke up through the night, I dropped to my knees beside my bed and prayed for the Holy Spirit to pour out his conviction upon this man and make him miserable over his sin. Things do not always happen this way, (laughs) but they did on this occasion. True story. The next morning, this man showed up at work looking like he hadn't slept a wink. He didn't even say hello. He didn't greet me. He didn't say a word to me. And we just started working together in silence. And about 30 minutes into our workday, he finally broke the silence. And I'm not kidding you. He said to me, man, I got a visit from the Holy Spirit last night. And I couldn't have been more excited. I said, are you serious? And he said, yeah, I didn't sleep at all. I almost called you at three in the morning. That young man never laughed at me when I talked about Christ to him after that. Well, a time or two, he would start to, but then I would say to him, I'm going to stay up all night praying for you. (laughs) And he would plead with me not to do that and be more attentive. But a few months later, I got to see this young man bowing his head in the workplace and praying to receive Christ. And I give 100% of the credit to my witnessing partner, the Holy Spirit. And he's your partner too. Whether those you're witnessing to and your experience looks like what I just described or looks very different, the Holy Spirit is always your witnessing partner. Be encouraged in that. You know, when you read the book of Acts, you you actually see how Jesus' disciples internalize Jesus' promise in this passage. In fact, write down Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Peter and John have gotten in trouble for preaching Christ, and they're standing before the Sanhedrin, who is gathered to scold them and to flog them for what they have done. And Peter begins testifying to the truth about Jesus to these men who despise Jesus. And Peter then says, and we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. Peter and John talk this way because they took to heart what Jesus is promising in this passage here that we're looking at today, fully embracing the truth. That as they testified to others of the truth about Jesus, the spirit would also be testifying the same message to the hearts of those that they are speaking to. And we can know the same. Can we not? As we testify about Christ to the world. Why does Jesus even talk about all this that we've looked at today? Why does he say all that he has said to his disciples? Well, this brings us to the final declaration of Jesus to prepare his disciples to be faithful witnesses in a hostile world. Number five, let's word it this way. He says, basically, I am telling you these things in advance to prevent you from stumbling. I am telling you these things in advance to prevent you from stumbling. Observe what he says in verse 1 of chapter 16. He says, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. 
The Greek word that is translated kept from stumbling is the word scandalizo that we get our word scandal from. Essentially, Jesus says all that he says in this passage we've looked at today to keep his disciples from being so scandalized by the opposition of the world against them that they stumble into discouragement or into despair or into compromise or even into apostasy. And he has told them about the help that his spirit will provide them to keep them from stumbling into discouragement or despair or into silence or even into compromise and apostasy. He continues in verses two and three and says, look at verse two, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. The language here is that everyone who kills you to think that he is doing that as an act of worship to God. Verse three, these things they will do because they have not known the father or me. Jesus is telling his disciples not just to expect persecution from non-religious pagans, but from religious people who claim to know God and who think that they are persecuting them as an act of worship to God, just like Saul of Tarsus in the book of Acts did in ravaging the church out of a religious zeal for the religion of his forefathers, wrongly doing that as an act of service to the God of Israel. Down through the centuries of church history, Christians have been killed by religious people, sometimes in the name of the Roman emperor, whom they believe to be God, sometimes in the name of Jehovah, other times in the name of Allah, and yes, sometimes even in the name of Jesus. But those such people who persecute the true church may think that they are doing God a service. They are wrong, Jesus says. The real reason they will persecute the church is because they have not known the Father nor Jesus. In verse four, Jesus says, but these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Jesus, when you think about it, didn't really need to warn his disciples about this persecution at the beginning of his ministry Because as long as he was on earth, he was the lightning rod of the world's hatred. But he's telling his disciples now, knowing that the world's hatred of him is about to be visited upon them in his absence. He warns his disciples now that there will be times, look at verse four again, when the wicked will have their hour their hour of triumph. And he's telling them this now so that when such times come, his disciples will not lose heart and will not stumble, but keep on giving faithful testimony about Jesus to the world in the hopes of saving some. 
There's a lot of takeaways from our passage for today. Let's think about just a few as we wrap up this morning. For starters, our passage today teaches us to expect that Christians will be hated by the world if they are faithful in their witness. This means that when we hear the news of a Christian or a Christian ministry that is experiencing persecution from the world, we should not automatically believe the accusations against them and assume that they must have done something wrong. We should remember that Jesus was persecuted and falsely accused of wrongdoing by the world, and he never did anything wrong, right? At the same time, Jesus' prediction that we will be persecuted by the world doesn't mean that any and all persecution that we experience from the world must be because we're being faithful to Christ. I wish that were the case, but the truth is that sometimes Christians can be hated by the world because they're acting like jerks and engaging in a lot of nonsense and then just putting the name of Christ on that nonsense and not because they are giving faithful witness to the truth about Christ. Let's not let this be the case with us. Let us obey the scriptures and let us follow Jesus and make him known to others and walk in humility and in love. And if we are persecuted, let's make sure we're persecuted for the right reasons. Jesus' warning in this passage should also cause us to I think ask ourselves some hard questions if we live year in and year out and never, ever experience any persecution for the sake of Christ. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and I quote, not that we are to go out of our way to invite persecution, but if we never experience persecution, we should examine our lives more seriously to see if they are free from compromise with the world. I think that's a fair word of advice. I think sometimes we Christians can get too clever for our own good in trying to bend over backwards to be just like the world in order not to cause any offense. But think about it this way. If Jesus wanted us to be just like the world, he would have never bothered saving us in the first place, right? Because we were fitting in with the world just fine before he saved us. Everything Jesus has said to us throughout the full length of John 15 should remind us that the purpose of our salvation is wrapped up in us living distinctly from the world, not in us being just like the world. And speaking of not being like the world, uh, we should be careful not to respond to the hatred of the world with a hatred of our own and with a meanness that matches the meanness of the world against us. Persecution from the world does not give us license to be mean and nasty in response, nor does it give us license to begin persecuting our opponents in response. 
If all we do when the world mistreats us is respond with a hatefulness of our own, then we give the world the ultimate victory by allowing it to transform us into its own ugly image. Let's not let this happen to us. When we are cursed, let us bless in return as we're called to in the scriptures. When we are mistreated, let us show love in response. Let us wage our warfare with love and not with rage. In his book, Tortured for Christ, Richard Wormbrand speaks of this kind of love. We will meet in heaven. Unquote. How did Richard Wormbrand know that that husband said those words to his wife before he was executed? Well, he was told about that husband's words by the communist officer who was guarding him in that moment and who became a Christian as a result of what he heard this husband say to his wife before he was executed. And when this communist officer himself was later imprisoned for his faith in Christ, he met Richard Wormbrand in prison and told him the story of this husband's words of love and forgiveness to his wife. And here's my thought. If these Romanian Christians, through the help of the Holy Spirit, could love their persecutors the way they did, then so can we. More importantly, if Christ could love and pray for those who crucified him, then we ought to do the same and thereby mirror the gracious love of Jesus Christ. Finally, I don't need to tell you guys that our society here in the West increasingly identifies Christianity as the fundamental problem with our culture. And some in our society are doing everything they can to wipe away any remnants of Christian influence from our society. And in the days to come, that is going to include their attempts to cast us out of the synagogues of this world and push us to the margins of society. If and when such a thing may happen, let's not freak out as if some unexpected, unforeseen thing is happening, for this is what Jesus predicted would happen. It's what the world did to Jesus and to his disciples. So we should not be surprised if this happens to us. And if it does happen to us, here's what our thinking process needs to be. If the world wants to push us to the margins of society and there's nothing we can do to change that, then we will be faithful to Christ in the margins just like the early Christians were, just like Jesus was. 
In fact, think about it. The world of Jesus' day rejected him, and they drove him outside the city of Jerusalem and crucified him, throwing him away like trash, crucifying him outside the city. Talk about marginalizing someone. No one was ever more marginalized than Jesus was in that moment. And yet, what did Jesus do? He died on a cross and he loved his enemies in that very spot. And he wielded more power in that spot than any emperor wielded from a throne. And we are still living in the good effects of what Jesus did in the margins that he was pushed to on that occasion. Let us, as the people of Christ, set our face like a flint and be prepared to follow Christ's example. With the help of the Holy Spirit, let us not stumble when the world hates us. Let us give faithful testimony for Christ without compromise, knowing that the Spirit will be our helper each step of the way. Do you want to do that? Let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you for uh, a text like this that hits us with some very hard and sobering truths, painting for us what our reality will be if we're truly faithful to you. We praise you, Lord, for your faithfulness in enduring the persecution and the suffering that you endured and you never wavered or compromised with wickedness. You never, you never sinned. And Lord, many of us in this room would have to confess to you that we have sinned and we have been silent and we have been intimidated. We're thankful that you went to the cross to bear even those sins upon your person so that we might have atonement and forgiveness for our stumblings and sins, even when it comes to giving testimony for you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to drink deeply of this grace and may this grace just melt our hearts, Lord, into a deeper obedience to you, and a larger boldness for you. May our love for you be hotter than fire, such that a freight train could not stop us from speaking to others of what we have seen and heard in you. As I studied this passage this past week, Lord, I found myself often thinking of our missionary, Tim Carnes, who is in Pakistan right now and has the amazing opportunity to preach the gospel at several planned banquets with at least 300 attendees in each of those banquets, most of whom are Muslim doctors and lawyers and judges and government officials. We pray for these banquets that will take place tomorrow and Wednesday and Friday and ask that you would give to Tim and to the other believers participating in these events, Lord, a holy boldness 
as they proclaim the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for Tim as he visits the places where many churches and even Christian homes were burned within the last year. Burned in spiteful hate against you, Lord Jesus, by the enemies of Christ. Help Pastor Tim and others with him to be an encouragement to the brothers and sisters there. We pray for these brothers and sisters in Pakistan, Lord, who are suffering for you. Help them to stand tall in you, to be bold in you. Give them comfort that they need in you and help them through their faithful witness and through their love to show the world around them that there is a better way than the way of Islam. And that is the way of Christ who is the savior of all who will humbly bow before him and believe in him and call upon his name for salvation and help each of us to give faithful testimony in this way, Lord, about you to those whose paths we cross even in the days of this week. And I pray if there's any here in this service this morning, Lord, whose hearts you are touching. I ask you, Lord, to remove the scales from their eyes and help them to see the beauty and the glory and the power of you, Lord Jesus. And I ask you to draw them to yourself and to save them today. We ask all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said,